Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week, storing data in the tiniest of spaces. Current technology is of the order of a million atoms, and we have now reached the very end, which is a single atom. And a study of microorganisms in Neanderthal mouths paints a graphic picture of their encounters with humans. And so it actually suggests that there might have been some sort of spit swapping between humans and Neanderthals. Plus, we chat to the scientists who uncovered the world's oldest fossils. This is The Nature Podcast for March the 9th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Adam, uh, open wide, please. I need to look at your dental calculus. My what? Your dental calculus. Uh, calcified dental plaque. Basically bits of food and microbes that live among your pearly whites. No, I'd, I'd really rather you didn't. My teeth are spotless and you're definitely not a dentist. Correct, but I am very interested in what dental plaque can reveal about diet and health. A new study in Nature takes a look at some dental calculus from Neanderthal teeth one individual from Belgium and one from Spain. They used DNA sequencing on the material furring up and solidifying on Neanderthal teeth. It's given them a lot of information about food, bacteria, even medicinal compounds, really anything these guys put in their mouths. Sounds fascinating. Why not get the authors to open up about that? Well, handily for you, that's what Ewan Calloway has done. He and author Laura Wyrick, who's at the University of Adelaide, had a wide-open discussion about mouth health and the big differences between Neanderthal diets in different places. Here's Ewan talking to Laura. Your team found really striking differences between Neanderthals living in two different parts of Europe in regard to their diet, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at Neanderthals in both Belgium as well as Spain. And we also looked at another Neanderthal in Italy, but it didn't happen to result in good DNA sequences. But the Neanderthals in Belgium are what we would consider the more classic Neanderthals. So these guys were eating a lot of meat. So we found evidence for DNA in their calculus for woolly rhinoceros, as well as mouflon sheep, which are a wild type of sheep that live in Europe at that time. But that's very, very different from what we see in Spain. The Spanish Neanderthals are almost vegetarian, so we don't see any evidence of meat consumption present in their calculus. We only see things like pine nuts, moss, even tree bark. They were eating basically what they could find in their very forest-like ecology that they were living in. These would really um, have been kind of the true paleo diet Neanderthals. (laughs) We joke about that a lot, that we should write the true paleo diet cookbook um, and include, you know, moss and tree bark and and pine nuts. So we found 
in Neanderthal plaque evidence that they uh, were, were foragers in one area and, you know, meat eaters in another area, true locavores. What else can we learn from their plaque? So when we were looking for dietary information, we incidentally found some some evidence that provided insight into the medicine or the medicinal practices that these Neanderthals may have had. There was one Neanderthal in particular from El Cedron Cave in Spain that was suffering probably some really nasty side effects from a dental abscess, as well as a gastrointestinal pathogen, microspertia. The dental abscess is, is evident in the skeletal uh, material. You can see kind of where that abscess was eroding his jaw. But the microsporidia was something we were able to pick up in the dental calculus. So it's likely that he was suffering from a diarrhea or some sort of gastrointestinal type bug that would have made him noticeably sick. So we were actually able to go in and look for not only pathogens that would have made him sick, but then also how he might be treating those pathogens. And so we found evidence for him consuming poplar bark. And poplar bark contains salicylic acid, which is the active ingredient in aspirin. So it would have treated his pain um, of this disease. We also found evidence for him consuming molded herbaceous material. And this molded herbaceous material contained penicillium, which is a natural source of an antibiotic penicillin. So we probably don't think that the Neanderthals knew to seek out this particular mold and consume it as a, as a medicinal act, but more so that they may have known that eating moldy material might make you feel better. Are you able to also get a snapshot of not just a, a couple pathogens, but of the overall microbiome of the teeth? We certainly are. And for me, that's the most exciting part about this paper. Uh, this is actually the first microbiome of an extinct species, as well as an extinct hominid. And it really was a lot of work to try to reconstruct these healthy, beneficial microorganisms that are present in the plaque. In this particular study, we're able to show that chimpanzees and vegetarian Neanderthals and gatherer humans used to share a microbiome. And it's really the introduction of meat into the diet in both Neanderthals and ancient humans that causes the first change away from that shared hominid microbiome a long time ago. So it really provides us a bit of window into our own health as well as Neanderthals. So what more can we learn from looking at ancient plaque? So I think that there's a lot of stories that are present in each individual bacterial species that we find in the plaque. And in this paper, we really talk about one bacterial species in particular, and it's not really a bacteria, it's an archaea. We can actually use the genomic mutations present in that species we find in Neanderthals and compare that to the same species we find in modern humans. And that tells us when one of the strains could have been introduced into one of those species. So here, we actually identify that this archaea, Methanobrevibacter oralis, was actually introduced into Neanderthals about 120,000 years ago. And this is around the same time that interbreeding began occurring between Neanderthals and humans. And so it actually suggests that there might have been some sort of spit swapping between humans and Neanderthals while these interbreeding interactions were going on. And that's quite a unique thing to think about because many of these interbreeding interactions have been described as very, very rough, um, very quick encounters, not something that would have been very sensual or, or very intimate. Um, but certainly if you're swapping spit between species, there's kissing going on or there's at least food sharing, direct food sharing, which would suggest that these interactions were much more friendly and much more intimate than anybody ever um, possibly imagined. I didn't. I didn't catch that uh, from from your paper that you could you could imagine how Neanderthals might have kissed. That's that's quite an insight. Yeah, it is. <laughs> wow, that's yeah, it's really fascinating. Do any other aspects of your results help you imagine Neanderthals as as individuals, as as real people? 
it really paints a different picture almost of the personalities of really who they are. And this technique actually allows us to kind of go in a step further and really look in their medicine cabinets, look in their food cabinets, figure out where they were going and, and how they were viewing the world. Um, it's a very different kind of take on ancient DNA and how it's being used today. That was Laura Wyrick talking to Ewan Calloway. Next, Laura wants to sequence food-encrusted teeth from any ancient human relative she can find so her team can compare the mouthy microbiomes and prandial preferences of our family tree. Find this paper on the two Neanderthals at nature.com slash nature. Ewan has also written a news story which you can read for free at nature.com slash news. We've got tiny data storage facilities and tiny ancient fossils coming up in the show. Plus, the highlights cover woolly mammoths and clumsy drones. First, an update on a story from last week. You might remember that food scientist Qasem Al-Sayed Mahmoud made it from his home country, Syria, to Belgium and is working at the Free University of Brussels. But the way the story ended was with his family in Turkey waiting to hear if they can join him. Well, last week, Kassem emailed with an update. His family have been granted a visa to join him in Belgium and they should be arriving before the end of this month. Here's wishing them a smooth trip. If you missed Kassem on last week's show about migration, you can find it and the whole Nature Podcast archive at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. To a computer, your precious holiday photos, spreadsheets, or all those archived episodes of the Nature Podcast are no more than strings of ones and zeros. Within the computer's hard drive, each one or zero, known as a bit of data, is stored by a tiny magnet. This can point up or down, and thankfully stays that way even when power is off. In order to cram more and more data into the same space, computers use ever smaller magnets to represent each bit. Fabian Natter of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne spoke to reporter Lizzie Gibney about his team's efforts to shrink magnetic storage down to the ultimate limit. If you think about how small you can make um, something, there's a natural end to it, and the smallest possibility is the single atom. So the, we wanted to try to see whether a single atom can be a stable magnet and whether we can use the stable magnet to also code information in it, like the North Pole pointing upwards and pointing downwards, like a normal hard drive. And just for comparison, what kind of size is each magnetic bit in a, in a current hard drive? Current technology is of the order of a million atoms uh, for one single bit. Compared to the atomic world, one million is a large number. And we have now reached the very end, which is a single atom. So what did you use then as, the, as the, uh, the little tiny magnet in your experiment? So it's a magnetic atom um, from the so-called rare earth elements. Uh, in this case, it was holmium. And uh, we used it because there was a report that showed that it had some kind of magnetic stability. Because when you encode that information, you want it to stay there. Exactly. So a hard drive has no use if the information that you code into it is lost after some time. And how long then in your experiments were you able to maintain that, that magnetic state of your single atom? We can only look at one atom at a time. Uh, and so far, all the atoms that we were looking at um, were stable for hours. And our instrument can only run for so long. So we cannot really characterize the real uh, lifetime of uh, the state. But for, for our world, it is almost as if it were infinite. 
So at that kind of level, when we're talking about single atoms, how do you go about actually writing the information, um, kind of encoding uh, your bits and then reading it out again? So we work in the atomic world. So all of our tools are atomic sized. So um, we use a so-called scanning tunneling microscope, which is essentially a very sharp metal needle. The very apex is uh, one single atom. And this is our microscope that we use uh, to look at the atoms on the surface. So we can move this tip along the surface, and if there's an atom, we will sense this atom, and you can also look at what kind of electronic properties they have by having a current run through them. And then you can use that current to make the atom either a one or a zero. Exactly, and uh, we can do this in a controlled way. And so we can um, use another tool that we have. It's an atomic-sized MRI machine, and in ess essentially it measures magnetic fields. And this little um, atom that we can have on a surface can measure these magnetic properties of our single atoms. So we have two independent ways. Well, it sounds very promising anyway for someday actually being able to use these single atoms in some kind of storage device. What have you made so far with them? First of all, we were uh, showing that they were very stable. And then we thought, OK, let's build a prototypical atomic memory. And so we have two sitting next to each other. And this is for us a prototypical 2-bit atomic memory. And then we were coding this memory. So we were putting information into it. And every time it remained stable in this kind of state. And do you think it will be easy to scale that up? Obviously, um, a 2-bit memory at this scale is very impressive, but it's still a pretty tiny amount of information that you can store. For us, it's a proof of concept. In principle, it should be possible to make a larger array of these uh, single atom magnets. And, and if you were able to do that, what kind of level of data storage could you achieve? You could reach something of the order of at 1,000 terabit per square inch. So and, uh, then the recent technology is at the, a magnitude of about 1 terabit per square inch. So it would be a 1,000 times less than what you can reach if, the, if you go to the very atomic level. And does having these single atom magnets allow you to do any new kinds of research? Yes, so we are very excited because for us it's like playing Lego, it's magnetic Lego. We have now stable magnets and we have ways of moving them around so we can position them on the surface with our microscope and now we can play uh, with this atomic Lego. We can put them together, have them interact with each other and uh, observe what kind of new properties emerge from this interaction. So it's a bit like we did in school playing with iron filings in a magnet, but, uh, but at the atomic level. Exactly. And uh, these kind of new properties are very exciting for us uh, as scientists to study. Uh, so we are very excited about this as a future goal. That was Fabian Natra, who is on the line from Lausanne, Switzerland. Check out his paper at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in the news, artificial intelligence takes on poker and IBM release a cloud quantum computer. But now for a short, sweet shot of science. It's the Research Highlights with Corrie Locke. Drones are often built with stiff, bulky frames for protection, but they tend to break during high-speed collisions. To make these devices more crash-proof, researchers looked to the insect world for inspiration. Many flying insects, such as wasps, have wings that deform when they crash into plants. So researchers in Switzerland made a 50-gram drone with wings that behave in a similar way. 
the wings are made of flexible fiberglass and during flight are locked into place with magnetic joints. During a collision, the joints release, allowing the wings to bend, absorb the shock, and then snap back into place. This allows the drone to regain its shape after a crash landing. You can learn more about the work in the journal IEEE Robotics and Automation Letters. A genomic meltdown might have led to the demise of the last woolly mammoths. These giant animals died off around 10,000 years ago in North America and Siberia, but a tiny population on an island in the Arctic Ocean managed to hang on for another 6,000 years. Researchers compared the genome sequences of an island mammoth with that of a mainland mammoth. They found that the island animal had many more harmful genetic mutations, such as deleted genes. These mutations may have affected the animal's social behavior and sense of smell, and could have even made their coat look silky and translucent. The researchers conclude that conserving small, isolated populations of endangered animals may not save them from genetic harm. You can find the study in the journal PLOS Genetics. The origin of life provides some of the biggest questions in biology. How and when did the first living cells evolve, and what did they look like? The usual method of finding out is to look for traces of these life forms in ancient rocks. But rocks rarely survive for billions of years without being squished, melted, or otherwise metamorphosed. That doesn't stop intrepid scientists from looking. One such scientist is Dominic Papineau. He was excited to examine a very old vein of rock in Quebec in his native Canada, and he brought some samples back to his lab at University College London. Inside these rocks were microscopic fossils. He described these microfossils in a paper last week, and he's convinced they're among the oldest traces of life on Earth. We sent Sharmini Bundell along to his lab to examine the ancient rocks. So this is called uh, typically a jasper. It is a very red in colour, and this red here, this is where we find the microfossils. And, and the really special thing about these rocks is the age. So how old is this piece of rock that I'm holding now? So this jasper has a minimum age of uh, 3,770 million years old. So this rock really formed within a few hundred million years of the formation of the Earth. So the jasper you found in Quebec, you, you brought it back to your lab, um, and then, then what was the next step in investigating it? So the first step is to look at it in the optical microscope. Uh, that's when uh, Matt, my PhD student, uh, started to identify specific targets that had potential biological signatures. And what kind of things did he see that sort of gave you the idea that you might have something exciting here? So Matt, at some point, he said, uh, hey, I found a lot of filaments in this particular thin section. So you have a piece of the, the Jasper on a yeah, slide here in the microscope. from uh, this morning's... Uh, the feature that we see here is uh, akin to the terminal knobs of iron-oxidizing bacteria. It, it and does just look like a blob to me. One of the things that makes us identify it as a terminal knob is that there's two filaments shooting off from it, and both of these have these twisted structures composed of hematite, spiral structures. You can see this when I change the, the focus here on the microscope. Oh, yeah, so the, 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 the red is sort of spiraling around out from that central blob. Yes. Uh, and how exactly are these blobs and filaments created by bacteria? If they are uh, identical or very similar to the modern iron-oxidizing bacteria, these twisted filaments would be excreted product from cells that were living here. 
in a terminal knob. Oh, I see. So this is this is bacteria poo. A, com- <laughs> a combination of uh, excreted, uh, mineralized, uh, undesired material. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So you found all these um, yeah, sort of amazing structures that look very similar to structures produced by modern organisms. But, but what do you know about the microbes that might have produced them? So they're very similar to these filamentous iron-oxidizing bacteria uh, that live in a wide range of environments. But those that are most relevant to our study come from hydrothermal vent systems. And, and what was so exciting about discovering that? These observations imply that there are organisms similar to those living today around hydrothermal vent systems uh, that existed back then, uh, all the way back to the beginning of the sedimentary rock record. Before this paper, what ideas did we have about how long ago life first evolved? So most biology textbooks would put uh, evidence for the oldest life at 3.5 billion years ago. There are rocks that have been suggested to contain evidence of early life, but there's been a lot of debate in that field because it's a difficult problem. We need to have several independent lines of evidence to support a claim like this. There was a paper by Alan Nutman from last year. This paper by Alan Nutman reported the uh, newly discovered stromatolites from uh, southwest Greenland. Uh, And what is a stromatolite? So a stromatolite is a uh, rock built by microorganisms. They grow in layers, and as they grow, they precipitate minerals. And when they die, their bodies themselves become mineralized. Very beautiful structures. We find them in places like uh, Shark Bay in Western Australia. And how old was that find? So the minimum age of the uh, stromatolites in Greenland is uh, 3.71 billion years. So that's very similar to the um, piece of jasper that you showed me earlier. And the microbes that you think made your microfossils, um, would they have been similar to the microbes that were making the stromatolites that Nutman found? They were not similar. Their discovery is for life living in shallow marine environments, whereas we discovered microfossils living in deep sea hydrothermal vents. So both our discoveries are even more significant when combined together because they implicate that life had diversified significantly more rapidly than biologists thought. Are we ever going to be able to find traces of life from long enough ago to answer the sort of really hard questions about how the very first cell evolved and things like that? We don't have the samples on Earth to answer that particular question, but some people have suggested that because there was a period of uh, heavy bombardment on the early Earth, that potentially some meteorites from Earth have landed on the moon, and that may have these pieces of the earliest uh, uh, prebiotic, maybe even, uh, evolution of the carbon cycle. That was Dominic Papineau of University College London showing off his ancient microfossils to Sharmini Bundell. You can read the full paper in the March 2nd issue of Nature, still available at nature.com nature. Finally this week, it's the news, and I have not one but two of nature's finest joining me in the studio. Uh, Lizzie Gibney is here. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence, and then later on, Davide Castelvecchi and I will have a quick chat about quantum computing. So some classic news chat topics coming up. Now, Lizzie... Uh, artificial intelligences have mastered games like chess and like Go and even a few video games. Um, but what's different about your report this week? So these are AIs from two different groups. And what they've done is they've 
beaten humans, but this time at poker, or at least a particular kind of poker, which is called Texas Hold'em. Um, and it's a game where you have some public cards and you have some private cards and you make up your your best hand out of those. Um, so these two groups have been have been rivals really over the years for about the past 10 years. And um, one of them uh, from the University of Alberta in 2015 managed to crack one version where you have limits on the betting. Um, and this time they managed to, to both beat professional humans at the version where there is there are no limits, which is a, a lot harder game. And how does poker in general differ from these games like chess and, and Go? So in a game like Go, um, you have all the information available to you and the same in something like chess. You have a board and you have pieces on it. In something like poker, it's what they call an imperfect information game or an incomplete information game because you are making your decisions based on uh, not only what you can see in front of you but what you think your opponent has. So you're having to think about what you think they have, what you think they think you have um, and all of this is based on your, your previous betting and your strategies about that. That sounds a lot more more like real life decision making, frankly. Exactly. So there are a lot of real life analogies with things like auctions or financial negotiation and even um, medical diagnosis. So that's why people are really interested in trying to trying to solve these kinds of imperfect information games. And they've been at it for years. I mean, what do you what sense do you get about how the two teams interact? They must go to the same meetings and discuss these algorithms a little bit. Yeah, they. I think they probably do. They are certainly like the two big names in this field. And in fact, uh, the person who leads the Alberta team, I think, used to work for the uh, Carnegie Mellon team, who, who, who's the other group. Um, so yes, I'm sure there's 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 quite a lot of uh, rivalry going on between them. And in terms of how the AI actually works for something like poker versus something like Go or chess, I mean, are there differences in how they've had to get this get this algorithm? Yeah, so the added complexity of it being an imperfect information game really does make a difference. So historically, when trying to uh, play poker, AIs have had to come up with uh, to before the game work out a whole decision tree. Clearly that's impossible, so they do a much, much smaller one. And then from that, they map onto the game they're actually playing. So it won't actually be exact, and that's why they haven't been able to play all that well. Both of the two AIs now are able to actually compute their solutions live during the game, which is a big, big difference. One of the classic features of the game is just that humans bluff and they lie to each other. I mean, are these computers able to do anything like that? Yeah, well, they, they absolutely bluff, but it's not... We think of it as something really special and, and to do with psychology and you know reading your opponent, but, but really it's just a mathematical strategy, right? All, all it's doing is trying to ensure that your opponent doesn't know what cards you are holding because of how you've played in the past. So you've got to throw them off by, by just changing your betting strategy and, and sometimes you bet on cards which are rubbish. Um, and so that, that's all it is for a computer. No facial tics, though, to give anything away. So they're... That's true. I suppose maybe maybe they're less likely to give things away. Do you happen to know whether any of the human professional players who play poker, I suppose, to win money, but also for enjoyment, are any more or less bored by playing an AI that's just kind of playing not to lose? Some of them are starting to train against AI. Only now the AI is getting good enough um, that it's kind of worth doing, really. But they have started to train against them a bit, like, again, with Go, to learn strategies they might not have otherwise applied. Um, but generally, you're not going to be playing against, or you shouldn't be playing against um, a poker-playing AI because they're not actually allowed in online casinos. And so I don't think anyone is yet thinking that this is going to really dramatically change their professional careers 
All right. Well, thank you, Lizzie, for briefing us on that bit of the future happening today. Davide, the other bit of the future that's happening today, (laughs) this is how these stories feel to me anyway, uh, is that IBM have made an announcement about the kind of next wave of quantum computing, haven't they? Yeah, so this is something that has been in the making for a while. Um, IBM has uh, sort of kept its its, uh, cards uh, hidden, but but only in part. And... um, they have unveiled this uh, quantum computing service that will be available on the cloud, sort of like any company can can book computing facilities from Amazon or Microsoft. But my favorite thing about it is that it's called IBM Q, which is reminiscent of the James Bond uh, king of technology gadgets. The uh, difference being that Q's gadgets are, at least in the film world, real and accessible and they work, whereas IBM Q doesn't appear to be able to do any of those magical things that we think quantum computers ought to be able to do quite yet. Well, it will be doing magical things. It will just be doing very simple magical things. For a quantum computer to be better than a traditional computer, classical computer, um, it will be, uh, it will need at least uh, 50 quantum bits, these qubits, the, the units of quantum computation. At this stage, it's not clear yet, um, this IBM Q, it's not clear how many qubits it will have. It will maybe be seven or nine or around that uh, range, at least in the first iteration. And then IBM says that they will plan to ramp it up. What will it be doing for people once it goes live then? And who do you anticipate might sign on to use its services? Well, in part, it could be researchers who do who do research on uh quantum algorithms and quantum programming who want to practice on an actual machine. You know, for example, um, computer scientists who develop an algorithm and they, they want to test it in, in, in real life. Uh, but also, uh, and this is the, the, the primary uh, reason why I, IBM is doing it, there could be a lot of companies uh, that want to start uh, experimenting with these machines and and to see if they actually can be useful to them. Uh, because uh, until now, quantum computers have been kind of an, an answer in search for a question. Um, there isn't a lot of demand for a quantum computing facility like this yet because companies don't quite know what to do with it. And so IBM kind of hopes to have a learning process together with other commercial partners where they will find, you know, use, they will find ways to put it to use. As you put it in the top of the story, if you build it, they will come. Yes. <laughs> this could lead, I suppose, one day to this this new sounding field, at least new to me anyway, about quantum coding, right? I mean, you can't program these things in the way that you would program a traditional computer. That's right. It's completely different. And also, uh, one one thing that is interesting to me is that it's one thing to do to have algorithms that are, you know, that quantum algorithms that work in in theory. It's another thing to make them work on an actual machine. So the IBM Q announcement was made on Monday, um, but has anything like this ever existed before? Yeah. So in fact, this builds on an existing initiative by IBM called Quantum Experience, where a very very basic quantum computer was made available to anyone who wanted to uh, try and program it. What's the betting that the MIT students, having taken their course in quantum computing, were applying all their newfound skills to online poker in the evenings? Davide and Lizzie, thank you very much for joining me. 
That's all we've got time for this week. For more on IBMQ, check out the website research.ibm.com forward slash IBMQ, where you can also give Quantum Experience a go. Davide's new story and Lizzie's on poker playing AIs are both free to read at nature.com forward slash news, where you'll also find a comment piece about making quantum computers commercially viable. Next time, if planes ran on biofuels. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.